Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our HR forum on uh, atypical workers. It's a sort of heading that gives me a few difficulties. If you walk into a room and you call staff typical, uh, they seem to get offended. And if you call them atypical, they get offended. And that sort of sums up this topic in that in some ways you can't win. Um, what we're going to cover today is firstly we're going to look at the key distinction. That's between employees and independent contractors, and also the overlapping intermediary aspect, which is the definition of worker. And that will lead us into a discussion about casual staff and whether they should be treated as employees or workers. Um, I'm then going to hand over to Catherine Dukes, um, who's going to deal with the new regulations on agency workers that's coming in uh, later in the year. She's going to then move on to uh, home workers, part-time workers, fixed-term employees, and the proposed extension of the flexible working regime. We're going to talk for about 25 minutes, and after that, we're going to have a coffee break, uh, followed by a case study, an opportunity for you guys to share your experience and try and consolidate your knowledge. There's various employment lawyers around the room, so it's also an opportunity to ask them questions on any topics that may be of relevance. Um, so. Before I kick off, I suppose, you know, the, the question is, why is this important? And I was reading um, newspaper yesterday, Telegraph yesterday, and <coughs> there was an article that said that only 3% of employees who were recruited since 2009 are full-time employees. Um, so from that, it means that 97%, if the, the statistics are correct, are atypical in some way. <coughs> And the greatest proportion of atypical workers are part-time employees. Apparently there's almost 8 million, um, 7.89 million um, part-time employees, um, which comprises 2 million men and the remainder uh, women. <coughs> We've also seen a massive increase in the number of uh, independent consultants, which have jumped by over 100,000 uh, in the last three months to an all-time high of 4 million. Um, so, there are obviously various difficult, different forms of um, atypical worker, home workers, part-time workers, fixed-time workers, but as I mentioned earlier, the key distinction, the first distinction that we need to, to look at is the, the, the difference between uh, an employee who has lots of employment rights, which I'll come on to, and an independent contractor. And as part of that, there is this overlapping concept of worker which provides additional rights. So let's start off with employees. Um, as we all know, if someone is an employee, they come with a host of employment protections. Unfair dismissal rights, maternity rights, the 2P transfer of undertaking regulations would apply to them. So they come with a host of benefits. <coughs> um, but also there are benefits that apply to the employer. For example, employees can be bound by post-employment restrictive covenants in order to protect your business after the employment relationship has come to an end. Those are quite difficult to apply in an independent consultancy uh, relationship. By the same token, um, intellectual property rights such as patents and copyright will generally, generally be automatically protected where someone uh, is an employee. And employees are also bound by certain employed, implied rights which can be useful, such as the duty of trust and confidence. So the question is, how can you tell 
if someone's an employee? Well, I suppose the first thing is the individual needs to work under a contract of employment. And that contract can be expressed or implied, uh, written or oral. But there are three key aspects that need to be contained in the employment relationship in the, in the, in the contractual arrangements. Um, those are control, mutuality of obligation, and personal service, which from the ready-mix cement case, one of the biggest cases in employment law, are described as the irreducible minimum. So what do they mean? Well, the first one is control. The employer needs to control what's done, when, how, and supervise the work. Then you need mutuality of obligation. There needs to be an obligation on the employer to provide work and an obligation on the employee to do the work. And then you've got personal service. The obligation has to be on the employee to do the work personally. There can be some substitution, but in very, very limited circumstances, such as when they're on maternity leave or uh, sick pay. Once you've ticked those boxes, once you've found out there is the irreducible minimum, you need to look at a range of other factors to determine whether someone is an employee. And those factors will include things like integration. <coughs> Does the employee have the badge or the uniform or have the seat, um, the computer, the provision of software in the same way as other employees? The next thing you look at is the economic reality. Is the economic reality that the individual is really running their own business with a view to profit? Or are they just generally receiving repeat income for the work they do in a, in a manner that's akin to an employment relationship? <coughs> an express description in the contractual arrangements it historically hasn't been that important. If you <coughs> describe a relationship as one of employment or one of independent consultancy, the courts only say that that has so much weight, perhaps in the circumstances where the situation is finely balanced. However, we did have a, a recent case on this, an EAT decision, and in that case, the court said, well, you know, really, you know, there's lots of factors that point to this individual being an employee, but where I'm a bit uncomfortable, where the court was uncomfortable, is that, you know, the, the individual was pressing to be an independent consultant, and the employer reluctantly agreed to that, and the employee used the independent consultancy to his advantage for tax and other, other arrangements. And the courts kind of thought, although they didn't, didn't say this in, in so many words, they kind of thought, well, you know, if he was using it to his advantage, it seems unfair now that he can turn around and claim that he's an employee when all the other factors are so finely balanced. Um, so what are the other, um, the other helpful factors? You look at whether the individual can hire their own help or they have to do the work on their own, which of course comes into personal service, and their ability to undertake other activities during working time. Bear in mind that you can have someone working for you on a part-time basis and then leaving and working for someone else. However, an independent consultant can generally chop and choose uh, what they're going to do uh, at any time. Which leads us into independent contractors, um, which provide service under a contract for services. Um, in order for an independent contractor arrangement to exist, it, the individual has to agree to provide services to another rather than to serve. Um, there's no obligation to provide the services personally. There needs to be an unfettered right uh, to provide a substitute. And it's not just enough that you put that unfettered right in the contract. It has to exist in reality. The factual circumstances have to support it. Um, there should be no mutuality of obligation, no requirement 
that the work is undertaken. So typically, um, there'll be much less control. The independent consultant can determine their own hours. They assume financial risk. They're not integrated to the business. They don't come to all the Christmas parties and turn up to all the meetings and are listed as employee number 326. Um, they should provide their own equipment. Um, and the arrangement should be non-exclusive. It helps if the independent consultant is uh, engaged through a third party, party service company, a uh, personal service company. Although that's not, again, determinative uh, of the matter. Again, it helps for tax because, of course, IR35 would apply. If someone is an independent contractor, then they don't have the host of employment rights that would apply to the employee, which I mentioned before. But they do have limited rights. They have the right not to be discriminated against. They also have the right to have a safe place of work. And if, and I say if, the independent contractor is a worker, they may have additional rights under the working regime. Which leads us into this slide. Um, I have to say, this slide was drafted by Catherine, who's going to speak in a few moments. And I, the one thing I know, she put EU concept. And um, whenever you know, I, I use the word EU concept, it's normally you know when an American is asking me how you know Great Britain came to introduce the Tupi legislation and mad legislation like that. And the first thing you say is, it's an EU concept. Um, work means um, an employee under a contract of employment. Um, so all employees will be workers. So the key question is, all employees are workers, what sort of independent consultants are workers? And that's where the individual undertakes to perform work personally uh, for another party, but not by, by virtue of a contract um, of that of a client or of a professional business carried on by the individual. So the key distinction in this context is the individual providing work in a personal capacity but not in a business context. And assessing that, the courts look at a range of factors in the same way that they do when they're applying the test for employees. Obviously, it's a looser test, but the key that they're looking for, is this a business arrangement, or are they providing the work personally? I'll give some examples of that uh, in relation to the next slide. If someone is a worker, they have um, certain protection, which is listed on the bottom of the slide, the working time regulations, minimum wage, uh, part-time workers regulations will apply, they're protected under the whistleblowing regime <coughs> and, and certainly certain rights to, uh, of, of accompaniment. Where there is a main clash between the regulations relating to independent contractors, <coughs> uh, 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 where there is a main clash in, the, in terms of the worker regime is in relation to uh, casual staff and the distinction whether they should be treated as employees as workers and casual staff can take lots of forms you know they could be zero hours contracts or bank staff um, often these individuals are engaged under some sort of umbrella contract that sets out in general terms um, what the arrangements would be between the parties there's been some interesting cases on this the first one was um, Carmichael and National Power in that case uh, Mrs Carmichael did tours of a power station and the arrangements between the parties said that um, the arrangements between the parties said that there was no obligation to offer Mrs. Carmichael work, and there was no obligation on Mrs. Carmichael to do the work. And because of that, there was no mutuality of obligation, and the court found that Mrs. Carmichael wasn't an employee, but she was a worker. <coughs> 
And that was followed in the case of ABC News and Gisbert. In that case, Mr. Gisbert was a reporter. Um, ABC News committed to provide the reporter with at least 100 hours worth of work, but the contract said there was no obligation uh, on Mr. Gisbert to actually do it. So arguably, there was no mutuality of obligation. But the courts looked at all the factual circumstances surrounding this, and they said, well, actually, I'm not sure that's really right, because Mr. Gisbert always did the work. So well, you, although you had a right in your contract, it was, it was never applied, and because of that, we're going to treat him as an employee. <laughs> um, that was followed in the St. Ives and Plymouth case and Haggerty, which was similar facts to the, the, the Carmichael situation, except that arrangement had been going on for nine years. And although there was in the contract no, no obligation to provide the work and no obligation to accept it, what they said is that this, is actually, this arrangement had actually been going on for nine years. And during the nine years, they'd always offered the work and the individual had always accepted it. And because of that, there is an employment uh, relationship. So just to sum up, <coughs> why is this distinction important? Well, if someone's an employee, um, of course, there's certain pros. You have control, but not slavery. Um, restrictive covenants. Um, you have automatic protection in relation to intellectual property. And you have various implied duties, which are useful uh, as an employer. I suppose the cons, if you're looking at it from the employment's perspective, is they're highly uh, protected. If someone's a worker, they have fewer rights. One of the cons is it's actually quite difficult to tell whether someone is a worker. And we're kind of waiting for cases in relation to the European concept. Um, the independent contractor, <coughs> the pros, they're self-employed. So in theory, they're not protected by all these additional uh, employment-related liabilities. Um, you know, there, there's limited rights in that arrangement to ask for indemnities from the individual to check that it's, it's all correct, although that can be quite difficult where there's only one independent contractor involved and there's nothing standing behind the, the contractual commitment. Um, the cons, uh, there's less control, no automatic IPR protection, so it's essential in your independent rela uh, contractor rela arrangements that you have protection in there. It's harder to prevent uh, competition. You can have clauses that say you won't be engaged in any conflicting duties, but it's very difficult to enforce traditional restrictive covenants, and there are fewer implied obligations. One of the biggest problems that many uh, employers face is that they have lots of people who they treat as independent contractors, but they are, in fact, employees. And the relationship will go on for a number of months or even years, but where these things tend to come to a head is where you, you terminate the employment. And the individual turns around and said, well, actually, although you've been calling me an independent contractor, I'm not, I'm an employee. And I'm entitled to protection under the unfair dismissal regime. You've not followed all the processes, and I'm going to sue you for that. And that's a very common claim. So if you do have independent contractors, it's important that you constantly review them to see whether they should be treated as employees, particularly any contractors uh, who have been with you more than nine months, so to assess it before they gain unfair dismissal rights at 51 weeks. So on that note, I'm going to hand over to uh, Catherine, um, <coughs> who's going to take us through the new rules on uh, agency workers. Thanks, David. Morning, everyone. As David says, I'm going to talk about the current law on agency workers first, um, just to give everyone a, a, a sort of brief brief backgrounds to the new legislation which is being introduced in October. Um, so there, as the slide says, there are currently 1.3 million agency workers in the UK. Um, 
and the typical arrangement is that the worker will contract with the agency to find them work and then the agency will contract with the client to provide the worker to the client but there's no contract at all between the worker and the client themselves. Um, again, the rights and protections of the worker depend on whether they can be classed as an employee, a worker, or an independent contractor. And, and for these purposes, I've used the concept worker, but they could be any of those three. Um, this can be difficult to determine because uh, if you're an agency worker, you may just go in to work for the client for two days, or you could be there for two years. As I say, there's no written contract between the client and the worker. There's also a lack of mutuality of obligation between the worker and the agency. So the agency isn't required to provide work to you, and you as the <coughs> a worker aren't required to um, take up any offers of work given by the agency. Um, the agency normally has a right of control because they're the one who has the direct contract with the worker. But in practice, it's the client who exercises day-to-day -day control when the worker is on site and fulfilling any uh, tasks to be done. Um, and they're also usually relatively integrated into the client's workforce. Uh, it's the agency that pays the worker and holds the power to dismiss the worker. Um, but in practice, uh, the solution is it, it, a fairly complicated um, decision to decide if, if you're the worker and you're dismissed, to decide whether you know, you can bring an unfair dismissal claim against either the agency or the clients. And in practice, what workers tend to do is to bring a claim against both and let the tribunal decide whether there's an employment relationship or a worker relationship or an independent contractor relationship with either the agency or whether they can be deemed to be an employment relationship with the client, depending on mutuality of obligation and that, that kind of thing and, and the duration of the, the work. On what basis will the tribunal decide if someone is a, either a employee or an independent contractor of the agency or an independent contractor or an employee of the client. The contract with the client is unlikely to be a contract of employment because, as I said, the agency doesn't have day-to-day -day control over the worker and there's no mutuality of obligation. There's no obligation for the um, agency to find work for the worker and no obligation on the worker to accept that work. So you're probably the, the worker's probably going to fall down on getting a, a contract of employment implied with the agency. So then they'll look to the client. And again, courts are unlikely to apply a contract of employment with a client. They'll only do so where it's necessary to give effect to the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation, wh where it will be necessary to give effect to the reality is if the arrangements are seen by the court to be a sham. And, and there's a case of Muscat, which was a case where the worker had previously been an employee of the client. And then due to uh, headcount reductions, the um, client had said, you're no longer going to be my employee, I'll make you redundant, but I'll engage you via an agency and you'll be an agency worker instead going forwards. Obviously the tribunal found that that was a sham and in effect the employment relationship had just continued. And in those circumstances the individual was able to claim unfair dismissal against the client. But also, um, it may be necessary to imply a contract of employment where the arrangements have changed over a period of time. So, for example, um, you've been, if the worker's been providing services to the client for um, a, a long period of time and the client has, in effect, insisted that they're provided with the same worker every week, um, 
then it may be that sufficient mutuality of obligation has arisen for there to be an employment relationship. <clears throat> and in those circumstances, the tribunal would imply a contract of employment with the client and that the worker would be able to claim a fair dismissal. The key thing to bear in mind here is that if it's a genuine arrangement, the client doesn't generally know what the worker's being paid um, because it'll include expenses and profits of the agency as well as the employee's or the worker's wages. Um, and the client can't insist on a particular worker being sent to them. So in those sorts of circumstances, if, if, if that's the case, then it, there won't be a, an implied contract and the employee will be left with no or the worker would be left with no rights. Sorry, I'm getting the terms confused myself. The other thing to bear in mind is that if a temporary worker is taken on by an agency and then the client engages the, that agency worker directly under a contract of employment, they may have continuity of service right back to when they started as a temporary worker. And finally to note that the client may be vicariously liable for the acts of the worker even if there isn't an employment relationship and that's under the doctrine of being a temporary deemed employer. Um, it usually arises in circumstances where the, the client has sufficient day-to-day -day control over the actions of the worker um, for them to be responsible for the worker's negligence, for example. And that one of the main cases um, that's arisen in this area was a nightclub which engaged an agency worker as a security guard. Um, the nightclub had control over his activities, he was subject to their code of conduct and he reported to their nightclub manager. So when he was involved in a brawl and, and injured somebody um, in a fight, the nightclub was responsible for the personal injury claim that arose from that fight. It's usually the agency that has the burden of proving um, that liability has shifted to the client in those circumstances and it's quite a heavy burden to shift but so you need to show that there was clear control by the client of the worker. So how can you manage the risk that um, a, a contract of employment won't be implied? First of all it's important to assess what agency workers are used for in your business. Are they used for specific short-term projects covering fixed periods or are they used on a longer-term basis when in reality perhaps an employment relationship would be more appropriate. It's also important to ensure that relationships are properly documented, so to make sure that the contractual documents with the agency and with the worker reflect the agency relationship rather than any employee status. And on a more practical level, on a day-to-day -day basis, as a client, you should try and reduce the control you have over agency workers um, for example, don't undertake appraisals of them, don't discipline them, leave that to the agency and pass any dealings with the agency worker via the agency. In terms of the contractual documentation, you'd usually expect a warranty from the agency about the uh, worker's status and you'd ask for an indemnity from the agency for claims based on employment status. Previously, you'd also, I would also have advised that you should try and min minimise the worker's integration into the business. For example, by not training them, not giving them management or supervisory roles, and not involving them in employee events. But this is actually quite a risky approach following the, the introduction of the new agency workers' regulations, which are coming into force in October, because there's a new right under those regulations, which I'll come on to talk about in a moment, that if you deny a, wor a worker or an agency worker access to employment facilities and training, it may well give rise to a claim under the regulations.
so moving on to look at the agency workers' regulations. As I say, these are coming into force on the 1st of October, and they implement the EU Temporary Workers Directive. An agency worker under the regulations is defined as someone who's supplied by a temporary work agency to provide work temporarily for and under the supervision of a hirer or a client, and who has a contract with the temporary work agency, which is either a contract of employment (coughs) or another contract to perform work personally. Now, that includes the scenario where the worker provides services to the agency via an intermediary such as a personal services company as David was referring to before for IR35 purposes. So it makes the structure even more complicated in those circumstances but, but that would in, an agency worker for those purposes would include someone who's providing services via a, a personal services company. It doesn't include people who are genuinely self-employed or those who provide services via a managed service contract which is another mechanism for providing uh, services which is tax efficient for the worker because they are a shareholder of the company rather than an employee so they don't necessarily draw employment income they take their earnings as dividends from the company and obviously therefore benefit from a a better tax treatment. So looking at the rights for new new rights for agency workers, uh, agency workers after the 1st of October will be entitled to the same basic working and employment conditions as if they had been recruited directly by the client, provided that they've got 12 weeks continuous service. I'll come on to talk about the 12-week qualifying period in a moment, but you do need to show, or the the worker would need to show, that there was an actual comparator. In other words, someone doing the same or broadly similar work as them, with a similar level of qualification and skills, at the same establishment, and whose employment is continuing. So they couldn't refer to uh, somebody who worked there five years ago and compare themselves to them and say, well, you know, I should have the same benefit that this person five years ago had. It has to be a current employee. And the client will have... will be deemed to have complied if it can point to an actual comparator and say, well, the agency workers' terms are exactly the same as those. And those terms are ordinarily included in employees' contracts generally. What we mean by ordinarily included is a matter of fact. So the, the tribunals and the courts will look at express terms in employment contracts, staff handbooks, custom and practice, and any collective agreements with trade unions. But clearly, organisations that have clear salary bands and a pool of staff doing similar jobs to the agency worker are probably going to be more susceptible to challenge than small organisations which have idiosyncratic arrangements and it'll be difficult for the agency worker to point to a specific person with the same terms. So what do we mean by basic working and employment conditions? Um, This is defined uh, as pay, which is uh, fees, bonuses, commission, holiday pay, <laughs> overtime pay, shift allowances and all those sorts of things. It also include, Pay also includes bonuses linked to individual performance. So again, you're going to need to include agency workers in, in an appraisal system if that's how you determine your bonus, which could be quite problematic, presume, assuming you don't do that at the moment. It doesn't include financial participation schemes, which means share schemes, share option schemes. It also doesn't include occupational pensions, sick pay, contractual redundancy pay, and those kind of things as well. As well as pay, you also need to provide the agency worker with the same 
hours of work, same rest breaks, um, same holiday entitlements, and if there's night work or shift work, then it's similar, to, or it's the same terms um, to do with night work. The courts, when they're looking at this, are going to take a term-by-term -term approach. So if you pay an agency worker 25% more basic pay in exchange for less holiday, that's not going to work. You've got the, the agency worker will still be able to say, you're, paying, you're giving me less holiday, therefore I'm entitled to the same holiday as, as this permanent employee. It's actually the agency that's primarily responsible for any breaches because they have a duty to come to the clients and say, what are your terms? And then to make sure that the worker is engaged on those terms. But the agency will have a defence if it can show it took reasonable steps to obtain relevant information from the client. So that may leave the client with liability in those circumstances. We'll move on to talk about the 12-week qualifying period next. Um, these have to be 12 continuous calendar weeks. So if someone works for you for two hours every Monday for 12 weeks, that's enough. Um, it will be broken if there's a break of six calendar weeks between assignments, or if you re-engage the agency worker on substantially different duties. And the government's actually going to provide guidance on what substantially different duties means. Um, that guidance is due to be published in the next few weeks. Unfortunately, it's not. We were hoping it was going to be published in time for this talk, but it hasn't been. Uh, so. The, the government has said it will be published in early 2011. It should be in the next few weeks. But the, the information that's come out so far is that um, unless you have a written description of the duties showing that they're different, then there's a presumption that it will be the same role. Continuity will also be suspended in, for certain absences, so sickness, absence, jury service. Uh, they're all on the slide there. But it continues to accrue during maternity, paternity leave and adoption leave. There is an anti-avoidance mechanism as well. So if you structure the 12 week series of 12-week assignments in order to try and avoid the regulations, say perhaps by um, alternating the group company which instructs the agency to provide the worker every 12 weeks or tweaking the duties every 12 weeks, um, then the courts will look at a number of factors to determine whether that's a genuine arrangement or not. And if it's not, then there's a £5,000 penalty for that. <coughs> The key thing to think about really with the 12-week qualifying period is that you're not going to know from the start necessarily whether someone's going to have 12 weeks service, um, you know, depending on the nature of the temporary work, you know, if, if it's a maternity cover or something like that, then you might do, but if it's someone's sickness absence that you're covering with an agency worker, you may not know whether that sickness absence is going to continue for more than 12 weeks. So in those circumstances, you need to make sure that you get the equal pay and equal treatment right from the start. Otherwise, it's going to, well, otherwise, you'll have to change it after 12 weeks, which could be quite difficult. So, in addition to the equal pay um, and equal treatment uh, type of rights, agency workers from the start of their engagement will also have the right to be told of any relevant vacancies with the client. In other words, to be given the same opportunity to apply for permanent employment as any other employee um, of the client. They'll also have the right to access to collective facilities and amenities in the same way as a permanent employee. Um, so this means, I mean, these are examples, but uh, you know, work canteen, uh, childcare, and transport. Although transport, um, again, is is defined quite narrowly, um, 
it means things like a local pickup service, transport between sites. It doesn't <coughs> extend to things like season ticket loans, company car allowances. You do have a right, uh, or, or the, the client has a right to try, or a defence, um, if it can objectively justify the difference. Um, but you need to show that there's a genuine business aim for the difference and it's a, it's, a, it's a proportionate means of achieving that aim. The other thing to note is that unlike with uh, fixed term employees, which I'm going to come and talk about in a moment, you can't look at the contract as a whole and say, well, although we don't provide them with a canteen, we give them more pay, so it's okay. Again, it's on a term-by-term -term basis. The final thing to note is just that the, um, the agency worker will have uh, a right of unfair dismissal or a claim for less favourable treatment if they are subjected to a detriment or dismissed because they have exercised rights under the regulation. So it, it, in effect it's a sort of a, a, a discrimination claim, if you like, for agency workers. I'm now going to move on to talk about home workers. I hope that you're, if you have home workers they don't sit and work like that, but anyway. Um, home workers doesn't really have a legal definition. I mean it can be a part-time employee, a full-time employee, a worker, an independent contractor. It's, it's quite widespread in, in the technology sector, so a lot of our clients do tend to find um, that they have home workers. Maybe a mobile worker, a salesperson, for example, who uses their home as an administrative base. Um, and apparently more than a fifth of the workforce does at least some work at home. Key things to note are that um, the employer has responsibility for health and safety, so it's necessary to undertake a risk assessment if someone's working at home um, to identify the hazards and assess the degree, degree of risk. And in particular, the key things I've pulled out that are relevant for a risk assessment for a home worker include stress. In particular, there have been studies that show that people who work from home often have difficulty enforcing boundaries between work and home life, leading to greater stress. So it's important to monitor stress levels and to try and integrate the home workers into a team if they're they're working from home all the time. Um, there are also obligations um, under uh, the use of equipment, work equipment regulations and the electricity at work regulations for ensuring that the equipment that you supply and the electricity supply that's used is all acceptable. And um, there's also an obligation to provide a first aid provisions to somebody working at home, although I would imagine home, home working is relatively low risk, so a simple first aid kit would suffice. You also should report any accidents that occur. So again, it's important to establish an accident reporting procedure, although you might just build that into your accident reporting procedure that you have in the office anyway. Another important thing to bear in mind is the insurance. So any equipment provided by the employer should be covered by the employer's insurance policy if that's possible. Or if not, then you need to require the employee to take out sufficient insurance cover. The key thing for home workers is protection of confidential information and personal data if they are logging onto work systems from home um, or ha have a laptop at home, making sure that um, you know their, their family members don't have access to your work confidential information. Um, and often you either you know, encrypt documents, encrypt the system um, and also have specific obligations under the contract of employment. The other thing to bear in mind with the contract is you might want to think about um, whether you establish core hours that they have to be working for. Um, obviously one of the benefits of home working is to some extent you can be a little more flexible about the hours of work but you know given that you've not got 
such close supervision, you might want to say you have to you have to be working between ten and one and two and six or whatever. You should also, in the contract, have a right to enter the property, either to um, maintain any equipment that you provide or to recover the, the equipment you provide on termination. And also, you should consider your computer use policy and whether that covers home working. Moving on to part-time workers. Part-time workers are protected under the part-time workers regulations. And a part-time worker, as it says it there, is, is paid wholly or in part by reference to the time they work and is not a full-time worker having regard to the employer's custom and practice. So if the employer's normal full-time employees do 37 and a half hours a week, a part-time em employee or worker will be someone who does you know, anything less than that. Again, it's a sort of a discrimination type claim that um, part-time workers have because they have the right not to be treated less favourably than a full comparable full-time worker as regards the terms of their contract or by being subjected to a detriment unless the um, employer can show that that's objectively justified. For example, you shouldn't select part-time part workers for redundancy unless you have some objective justification for that. And you should also bear in mind that because there are more women than men who tend to be part-time workers, there may be an indirect sex discrimination angle to um, that sort of selection as well. So the part-time worker has to point to a living, breathing uh, full-time worker who's currently employed by the um, company and show that there was a difference of treatment. Um, but the employer can prorate benefits for part-time workers. Some benefits are probably easier to prorate than others. So gym membership, how do you prorate that? Company car. One of the one of the key ones is is overtime actually. Um, so employers are entitled to um, pay part-time workers overtime only once they have worked the same number of hours as a full-time worker would in order to get overtime. But a pay policy under which workers who do less than five hours of their normal working hours a month don't qualify for um, extra pay, is that, that's actually a greater burden on part-time workers um, because obviously they have to do uh, proportionately more hours and therefore it may be um, unjustifiable under these regulations and also possibly indirect sex discrimination as well. The final type of uh, worker that we're going to look at is fixed term employees and the key thing to know about this, this is again another set of regulations, fixed term employees regulations, but just contrast that with the um, part-time workers regulations. So the Part-time part stuff only applies to, uh, applies to both employees and workers. Fixed-term regulations only apply to employees. Again, it's a similar sort of right. They've got the right not to be treated less favourably as regards to the terms of their contract or by being subjected to a detriment unless the treatment is objectively justified. But unlike with part-time workers and agency workers, you can objectively justify a difference in treatment by showing that the value of the employee's contract as a whole is at least equivalent to a permanent contractor's package. So, as, using the example I gave before, if you pay the employee more pay but give them less holiday, the courts will look at the, the value as a whole and that may be justifiable. Um, again, you've got to show a living, breathing, current employee to compare 
the fixed term employee must compare themselves against. And again, you can prorate benefits. So an example of that would be if you are a permanent, if you offer permanent staff an annual bonus, you should pay an employee on a six-month fixed-term contract 50% of that, which is <coughs> fairly self-evident. It's also likely to be unlawful to select fixed-term employees for redundancy simply on the basis that they're a fixed-term employee, unless their selection can be objectively justified. And for an example of the circumstances under which it would be justifiable would be if you'd recruited the fixed-term employee for a particular project which has now been completed, then you know, it may be justifiable to terminate in those sort of circumstances. But where you're saying, oh, we've got to go through a redundancy process, but I want to get rid of all the fixed-term staff first, that won't necessarily be um, lawful unless you have some objective justification for that. Under the fixed-term employees regulations, if you have four years of continuous fixed-term contracts, you're deemed to be a permanent employee. And in particular, that means that you're deemed to be on an indefinite contract um, unless there's an objective justification for the use of the continuous fixed-term contracts. So that would mean, for example, that if you had, say you had four years or five years um, continuous fixed-term contracts, you'd be entitled to a redundancy payment based on the five years service and notice based on your five years service. Um, final point to note is just that the expiry of a fixed term contract is a dismissal, um, which therefore means it's subject to the unfair dismissal regime and you would need a fair reason for dismissal and you need to follow a fair procedure when you're, when you're looking at the expiry of a fixed term contract. Just finally, um, I wanted to touch on the new proposals for the extension of the flexible working regime. If you're a part-time worker or a home worker, this may have come about because you've made a request for flexible working. And currently, the people who can do that are employees who are responsible for a child under 17, or a disabled child under 18, or are caring for an adult in certain specified relationships, such as, such as your parents who have 20 week, 26 weeks service and haven't made a request in the last 12 months. But from April, that's actually going to be extended to all parents under 18. And the government is proposing towards 2015 that the extension, it, it'll, the right to request um, flexible working to care for a child will be extended beyond mothers and fathers to, for example, grandparents and close friends. And potentially the extension of the right to request flexible working for everybody. So just something to bear in mind, whether, whether that'll actually um, go ahead, given the government's current angle towards reducing red tape for employers. We'll have to see, but that's, that's something to think about. <laughs>